You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, really, it's not as only we meet up with the thought uh, leaders come making an impact to today, survivors, but also seeing lives changed as a result of just one crazy idea we had. For the last 16 years, Paladar Canyon State Park has been home to one of the most unique athletic events in the country. Known as 24 Hours in the Canyon, it brings together individuals and teams on either racing bikes or mountain bikes, and the goal is simply to ride as much as you can in that one-day period. But it's not just about riding a lot of miles, although that certainly is a big part of it. The goal is to raise money for cancer survivorship in the panhandle, and the odds are good that there is no one alive today who has not witnessed the ravages of this disease, either themselves or among family and friends. Our guest on this episode of Buff Speak is Ryan Parnell, Director of Operations and Special Programs at the Harrington Cancer and Health Foundation in Amarillo. Ryan is the director of this very special bike race, one that brings together everyone from weekend warriors who hardly ever pedal a bike, to serious professional and semi-pro athletes from across the U.S. and even abroad. The 17th edition of the race will be held next June 3rd and 4th. It's an event that routinely attracts 800 riders and even as many as 900 riders in the 2022 event. It can be brutally hot down there that time of year, and it can also rain and not just a little drizzle. The unpredictability of cycling conditions mean that participants have to be ready for anything, not the least of which is their own motivation to keep pedaling for this noble cause. Ryan, what motivated you to create this event in the first place, and how does it tie into your position at the foundation? You know, Nick, sometimes I I wonder that question (laughs) myself Uh, with with the description you gave, too. Sometimes it's it's quite a challenge. Um, But ultimately, what really led to starting 24 Hours in the Canyon was um, back in 2005, I started having some stomach issues. And that led to numerous scans that led to uh, multiple ultrasounds, uh, PET scans, and finally receiving uh, the news. I'll never forget uh, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I was having lunch with my wife at the time. She was a kindergarten teacher. And um, the room where she was, for some reason, didn't have good cell service and had a call from my doctor to tell me the last results from my scan. And I stepped out and it hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, hey, listen, um, this is classic lymphoma. Um, we're going to get you in to see a surgeon and get a biopsy, uh, but you just need to be prepared. That's, that's where we are. Um, you fast forward, I got to enjoy a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, I went to see the surgeon and of course he, uh, reaffirms what the physician said. Uh, this is classic. looks like this. This is what it is. Um, you're young and you're healthy and I'll never forget. He said, you're young and you're healthy. Are, are y'all done having kids by the way? And uh, we were like, well, yes, we are. And he goes, well, good, you'll, you'll have chemo and radiation, and uh, you'll be fine. You're young, healthy, um, but we need to get a biopsy. When do you want to do that? And I'm like, what do you have on the schedule today? Because I was ready to find out what's going on. And um, I had to enjoy Christmas as well and had the biopsy done just before New Year's. And I uh, came out of surgery, and turns out when I was four, 
my spleen ruptured because my brother and I were jumping off of chairs and uh, landing in beanbags, and uh, I ruptured my spleen and had to have it removed. And so it turns out the spots that they were seeing for well over a year um, and watching them grow, um, turns out it's spleen tissue and uh, looks like lymph system because the spleen is a part of the lymph system, looks like lymphoma on these scans because it shouldn't be there. And so, um, you know, the word was just go forth and live your life and be healthy. And um, no, you're good. And I just remember looking at my wife and going, this is terrible. This whole experience just absolutely was awful. And then it hit me. Not a lot of people get that good news when they have their biopsy and they do all these things. They go forth and do the things that thankfully I didn't have to do. And so we decided we have to do something. And uh, it was really about that time that 24 Hours was born. And the stated uh, intent of your organization, or especially the race, is all about cancer survivorship. What does that entail? So uh, you're considered a cancer survivor from the moment of your diagnosis. Um, so the minute you hear you have cancer, you are considered a cancer survivor. Now, that's a label. Doesn't mean anything. Um, you know, then, then during treatment and then after treatment. Um, our physicians, especially here in, in Amarillo, are wonderful at treating cancer. And, uh, but there's a lot of things that go on kind of behind the scenes uh, that cancer survivors have to deal with. The anxiety, scanxiety, worrying about the next test, um, the depression, the, the lack of sleep, the, the fatigue, all these things come along with a cancer diagnosis and then, of course, come along with treatment. Uh, chemo and radiation are wonderful drugs to treat cancer, but they're terrible on your body. And so we uh, have focused now for so long just on trying to come alongside them while they're in treatment and then after treatment. And our goal is to say, you know what, we want to do whatever we can to return you back to your precancerous state emotionally, physically, and really just trying to work with cancer survivors and let them know that, I mean, there are resources out there for you. That's great. My, my late father could have benefited from a support system like this. Uh, he, he had cancer four different times. Oh, yeah. And that's why I'm very cognizant of that. I, I tried to stay on top of these sure. things, but he beat it all four yes. times. Yes. Well, and a lot of people don't realize that um, when you finish cancer treatment and you're finished with cancer um, and you get this, you know, uh, you're in remission, there's no evidence, whatever the terms are that are used, um, it doesn't end there. Um, there's a lot of, of worry because you, you have really stared down death potentially. Um, and here you are now saying, go forth, be healthy and just go on and live your life. How did you settle on using sport and specifically cycling as a, as a means of raising awareness and money? Yes. Couldn't people just donate without having to ride all those miles? They sure could. So, um, this is one of my favorite stories, um, of how this came about, um, Obviously, have no had no intention. I was a pharmaceutical rep at the time, um, had a job, you know, was, uh, uh, doing something not non nonprofit fundraising, and um, going through this, you know, since two thousand five, um, they always told me once these spots we go, we don't worry about them until they get a certain size. And I'm like, well, what does that mean? Well, it could be cancer, but but you know, we don't worry about that until that happens. So I always had in the back of my mind that this could be cancer but it never really registered with me. And uh, Nick, I know you, you, you've ridden bikes for a, a number of years, and um, there was a period of time, right, where Lance Armstrong was like everybody's hero. 
And um, it was around this time that uh, they started the Livestrong Foundation. And they started, uh, they put out, I saw an, a deal where they were asking for people to apply to come to the inaugural Livestrong Summit. And um, I thought, this would be great because, um, well, they said I could have cancer someday. I mean, that's really what they kind of said. And so I'm going to apply for this because selfishly, and I totally admit it was 100% selfish, was like, I'm going to get a chance to meet Lance. And uh, I'm going to apply to this. And there's no way they're going to take me. I got accepted. So I go to this uh, Livestrong Summit, and immediately I was like, you know, the fifth wheel. I did not belong. Um, I was in this, in this auditorium, in this room, in these small groups with all cancer survivors, people in cancer, in cancer treatment. I didn't belong. Um, and I never got to see Lance either, uh, which is a whole other story. But, um, you know, I was in these rooms. And they wanted you to walk away from this, this experience with coming up with an idea of what are you going to do when you get back home to affect change? And I remember thinking, I, I didn't come here for this. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't know what to do. And I sat at lunch one day at a, at a table and uh, they were going around the table at lunch. Hey, what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to do this. And what are you going to do? Well, I'm, I, I've had prostate cancer. Um, I'm going to start a prostate support group. Oh, I had lung cancer. I'm going to talk about getting, you know, quitting smoking and doing all these things. And then I'm like, oh man, I need to get up and leave because I'm next. I, they're coming around to me. Well, the guy sitting next to me says, well, we do this 24-hour bike event in a canyon where I live. And so we're going to, I'm going to continue to do that. And we're going to continue to grow that. And it really hit me like, we have a canyon. I love to ride bikes. And so they're like, well, Ryan, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I think I'm going to do his idea. This is great. And I can't for the life of me remember where he was from. Uh, but I'm like, I think I'm going to do that. And so on the way home, I felt this obligation, like I need to do this. And this is in October, early October. And I'm of, of, um, 2006. And I'm like, I need to put this on paper and maybe I'll pull it out one day and maybe I'll do something. I don't know. So that was October, November. I get the call. You have lymphoma, have my biopsy in December and find out it's not cancer. And I pull all that stuff out afterwards. And I'm like, we, this has to happen. We've got to do this. And so, yeah, you could just make a donation, scratch a check, something like that. But um, I felt like it was important to showcase Paladero Canyon and make this happen. How in the world did you convince a state park to pretty much give you free reign of the <laughs> facilities? That's pretty yeah, big. <laughs> it wasn't easy. Um, yeah, the very first year, they wouldn't let us ride the trails at night. Uh, it's too dangerous. Uh, I'm like, well, they're dangerous in the daytime. Um, yeah, I understand. And so the very first year... Actually, I think this was the first two years they wouldn't let us use the trails at night. Uh, then we, then we, they, we slowly got them to adapt to us and let us kind of get things going and make it happen. Um, to where I think they finally, they, I don't know if it was maybe, hey, these guys aren't going away. Um, we're going to have to help help them grow, or they just finally realized the benefit that we bring to the park um, in 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 bringing people here that have never been to Paladora Canyon. And so um, it was a mutual, I think, respect at the very end, finally, where it was like, okay, how, what do you need? You know, and we've taken over the park. We've out, actually outgrown the park, but we've utilized the, the whole park now for probably 10 years. And um, I never thought that day would happen. Well, between the, the early efforts of those who literally made the trail or blazed the trail, and then your event, which brought so many people down there, you've pretty much turned Paladero Canyon into a world-class mountain biking venue. It, it is a very wonderful place to mountain bike. 
Um, and I think that's why our mountain bike numbers out, outpace our road bike numbers. Um, but it's still a wonderful place, as you know, to ride a road bike. It is. It's a wonderful place. And um, we're very lucky to have what we have because it affords us to be able to be, as we like to say, we're the only event in the country that does both mountain biking and road biking, same time, same venue, same day for 24 hours. Now, not everyone rides 24 hours. That's a lot to it bite is. off at once. Uh, what other timed events do you have going on uh, under the umbrella? Yeah. It, it What started as 24 hours has now morphed into about 72 hours in the canyon. We, we start on Friday evening with a, a timed hill climb. Uh, from the base there uh, where Texas takes place and uh, finishes at the top. Um, and it's a lot of fun. It's at 10 p.m. Um, so, yeah, it's dark and, and it's neat because uh, everybody has flashy lights on the back and headlight on the front. And so we start the event really Friday evening with that. Um, and then we have other timed events. We have a 12-hour and a 6-hour timed event. Uh, we figured, what what are we going to do while we're down there? We're going to be there. We might as well you know, make a 12 hour and do a six hour. We're already there. And so, um, we've added those. And then the other thing is, that's really cool is we have, um, a kid's race. It's not timed, but it's a kid's race that's free for kiddos. Um, and then, cause we want it to be family friendly and family oriented, bring your kids and have a good time. And then we also have a non-competitive aspect. So we like to say, if you can ride a bicycle, even if you, like you said, even if it's just one time a year, we want you to be a part of 24 hours. I can only imagine the great stories that you've seen written in front of your eyes each June. Mm. Tell me some of those that stand out. Maybe stories of personal victory, mm. reaching mileage goals or whatever. Stories of giving everything you have for a loved one. I know it's it's not really just about winning a race. That's great. Sure. We all love to do that. Um, but it's not about just winning here. But maybe again it's uh, it's a very different kind of race isn't it it is it is um you obviously have those that are there for the for the trophy uh for the records and things like that um but i'll give you two that really stick out to my mind um uh there's it's it's very often um someone will come to the event and i i don't discount one thing that i'm given you know, sometimes they'll say, hey, I brought you a coffee cup or hey, I brought you I'm like, that's fantastic. Thank you. And I make a point. This is my 24 hours, you know, whatever it is. Um, but the, the best gift I've ever been given um, was from a, a lady. Her name is Sharon. And uh, she was a stage three breast cancer survivor for, gosh, nine or 10 years. And uh, she gave this to me probably two years ago, three years ago. And it's a it's a rock that has uh, like a mosaic heart on it. And um, she, I said, oh, this is fantastic. And I'm looking at it going, this is really cool. And she goes, no, 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 it's not about the rock. She said, this is what you guys do at the Survivorship Center coming from a, a cancer survivor. She said, is you take broken people and you put them back together. And that's what this broken heart here symbolizes because it's in, in the mosaic tile. And I thought, oh my gosh. I mean, I, of course, like had some liquid coming from my eyes. Um, and I, I think about that often it sits on my, sits on my dresser. So I see it every morning before I go to work. And it's a reminder of taking someone who is in their deepest, darkest moments, um, beaten and broken down from cancer treatment. And that's what we do. We try to put them back together. Um, the other story that is very, very powerful. And I, I will remember this till the day we quit doing 24 hours is, um, 
uh, a young lady by the name of Susan, also a breast cancer survivor. Um, she came and uh, we started, we have a podcast that we do and, and we do a podcast down at the, at the Canyon with survivors participating in the event. So we let them tell their story, all these things. And uh, she was on a podcast and I knew she was come. I knew she was coming to participate, her and her husband. And I knew that she was in the final stages of treatment of chemo. And I, being the good event director, kind of asked, hey, just make sure your doctor knows you're coming, <laughs> you know? And she's, oh yeah, he's fine with it. He's fine. So this is a, a lady who had chemo on Tuesday, came to the Canyon on Friday, did our podcast on Friday, and then rode a uh, two-person team for 12 hours. And um, bald head, no eyebrows, you know, she's in the mix of, of cancer treatment. And laid it all out and uh i mean empty tank you know that feeling complete empty tank um and could not even stand on the podium to get her trophy needed assistance to get up there and here's this lady i still get chills as i'm getting right now bald head you know it's you know the look it's obvious that she's in in cancer treatment and she's standing on the podium with help on both sides of her um to get her trophy and uh, it's one of those moments, I think, that um, it puts into perspective what it's really about. And if she can do that, then uh, all my problems and, you know, issues I have, you know, they pale in comparison. In uh, the span of about 30 years, I, I participated in tons of long-distance cycling events. Uh, most people thought I was just crazy, and I may <laughs> still be. Uh, but I did lots of 24-hour mm -hmm. events. Those are, they're really fun. They I, I always tell people you, you haven't cycled until you've cycled past midnight. You're right. Uh, it's a whole different game out there in the dark when you're fighting fatigue and mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the droopy eyelids and, and all that. And you start seeing critters. The crazy thoughts. The yeah. <laughs> it, it suddenly, you know, painting the house sounds like a lot of fun. But one thing I learned that it's, it's really impossible to compare one uh, ultra distance event to the other because there's too many differences the terrain mm -hmm. the climate you know all those types of things make it impossible to to compare events i've seen some events where people have gotten over 500 miles in 24 hours others where 450 might be you know the, a reasonable limit and i know to, to a non-cyclist all these numbers sound insane <laughs> Uh, but anyway, what kinds of records have you seen at, mm -hmm. at 24 hours in the canyon? Yeah. Um, it's interesting when you start looking at numbers like that because you do start to go, wow. I mean, it, it's um, it's amazing what the human body can do. And uh, so, yeah, I, 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 we've had some we've got some really big numbers for our records. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Andrew Willis. He's out of Austin. Uh, super endurance road guy. Um, he's won the race across the West several years. I know, maybe, I know you know about that. Um, that's where they start in California and end in Durango. And, uh, he came in, in 2018 and has our overall record for road bikes of 445 miles. Um, but then, you know, we also have our mountain bike side. And of course in the mountain bike world, Nick, there's, there's geared bikes and there's single speed bikes. And for your listeners that don't know what a single speed is, it means that there's only one gear and that's it. Um, so our 24 hour single speed mountain bike record actually fell this year, um, 223 miles on a single speed riding mountain bike trails. Um, it's, it's just 
unbelievable. And then the other thing that's really interesting too, our geared mountain bike uh, record has has stood since 2013. Um, and I don't know, this may be a hard one to break, but it's 255 miles. Um, and that, like I said, that's been around since 2013. So big numbers being put out there. I mean, they're riding from, and people, I get asked all the time, do people really ride for 24 hours? These guys, yes. Um, you know, uh, a lot don't, but yeah, there are a lot that do. And, and that's what it takes, of course, to set these big numbers. And, and your course is not easy. I mean, for the road cyclists, they got that big hill climb right at the very beginning. They're yes. not even warmed up yet. You're right. And they're having to climb about 800 feet at, I don't know, what is it, about 10% gradient? And, and it actually kicks up to about 12 or 13 in a couple of positions. Yes. I mean, you feel your heart ready to explode out of your chest. At the very mile zero. Yes. Uh, and that's on, only, you know, like one3 three, five miles to the top. And it is, it's hard from the very beginning. Yes. And then, and then those road racers pop out on top and they go do a huge loop that puts them out in the wind. Yes. And you know, this is not like the wind in Michigan right. or anything. This is horrible. Out yes, there. it and can be. And then of course, typically you get that n- normal tailwind coming back into town and you start to feel really good about that time. Uh, yeah, you're right. And then they descend back into the canyon and do a five-mile loop. But I tell you, and I think you would agree, if if I put those guys for 24 hours on a five-mile loop, they'd probably pull every single hair they had on their head out. It would be insane. Um, it's it's mind-numbing to do just a five-mile loop. So although it is brutal, I've polled them. I've asked those guys, hey, would you rather just do – oh, no. No, I'll, I'll fight the wind rather than doing – five-mile loops for 24 hours. Yeah, the mental anguish <laughs> of doing repetitive loops is uh, is enough. The scenery doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. oh, it's horrible. <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's so hard. But that's what you've got down there. You've got that nice loop. Yes. And I know in years past, you you faced other challenges when they were building the bridges down yes. there, and you had to do out-and-backs, yes. which made it even more tedious. We have, I think we've done just about everything, um, the out-and-back type things. Um, I've had, um, I've got some wonderful guys that are on our team are, uh, that help us out. And I mean, back when they had the, uh, water crossings, you know, those guys would be down there with, um, skid loaders and wheel loaders and these massive backhoes and scraping and trying to open up the culverts to get water to flow through. So we had either no water or just enough where it didn't matter on the skinny tires. Um, we've dealt with mud, we've dealt with slop. I mean, it has, uh, it comes together though, uh, to, to, to make it happen at the event. That race is kind of near and dear to my heart. I got the good fortune of having been official finisher once and I was co-director of it for four years back in the nineties. It's a nonstop 3,000-mile time trial race from Oceanside, California to Annapolis, Maryland. If if ever they needed a synonym for insanity, <laughs> this would be it. Yes. What does the cyclist have to do at your event to qualify for RAM, the granddaddy of American endurance cycling races? Yes. You know, I, I think I think uh, Rick and, and Fred both link for, for letting us be. You know, you have to apply. Um, and they kind of looked at us like, oh, I don't know, could, could, will you have anybody, you know, that'll qualify and, um, like, let's do it, you know, and, 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 and had great discussions with them and, um, they protect their brand naturally. And, and it's a wonderful, amazing event to, to dot watch, if you will, if you, you know, watching them on the, on the computer move along the, the country. Uh, but yeah, to, in order to qualify, so our 24 hour road racers, um, they must complete, um, 380 miles for men 
and 350 for women. And then um, they actually have a caveat too, if you're 60 plus, uh, guys is 350 and women is 335. And uh, it's a unique calculation. I won't get into, of course, how they do to come out with those numbers, but um, it makes sense. And uh, this year we had two people qualify. Um, Andrew Willis, who holds the record, he didn't beat his own record, but he did qualify for Ram. Um, and uh, we had a, a young lady that qualified as well. So um, it's kind of, I think it's a feather in our cap to have people qualify for those events because um, it brings people to us. And so, and, and it's nice to say I qualified at 24 Hours in the Canyon to go to Race Across America. Now, can cyclists ride together or do they have to ride solo? So, um, yeah, you know, we, we, we're really flexible in how we, we do this. So, um, yes, solo, obviously. Um, in the competitive category, we have a two-person team. We have a four-person team. And then we have what we call our large team, which is somewhere between seven and ten. Um, you can choose, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten, um, and, and those are all uh, all male, all female, or mixed. And doesn't matter how you mix it; you just have to have uh, a mix. And um, but yeah, so we allow teams, which is really fun to watch because, uh, golly, some of these teams can just hammer the miles out um, because they're getting rest. Um, and it, and I tell people all the time, though, I, it, it is so much harder to put a team, to be in charge of working a team together than it is solo. Cause you've got all these different dynamics. You've got different speeds, you've got different needs, you've got different wants and you know, all these things and different, um, uh, desires for the event. Whereas if it's just you, it's harder physically, but, but to make things happen as an individual is so much easier, but our team category is fun to watch. It really is. But for the solo category events, they're Riding by themselves. By themselves. Right. They are. That by themselves. They can't hop on somebody's wheel and, and catch a nice draft. They can't ride side by side. They're... Well, we, now, we do allow drafting in the canyon. And okay. the only reason for that, for, on the roadside, mm -hmm. the only reason for that is it's really hard to police on a five-mile loop because there's a lot of traffic. Uh, in terms of bikes. Um, now, on the 100-mile outside, uh, we do enforce a no-drafting policy um, to make sure that they're really doing that on their own and no support vehicles as well. But in the canyon, and, and that was one of the discussions we had with the both links was, hey, listen, please don't make me have non-drafting in the canyon because it would be very hard to police. And they understood. So what are things like in the uh, the, the staging area, the start-finish line, that's also where all the timing and the laps are counted. Uh, back when I was competing, I recall that area being more like a huge campground, and there was nonstop activity and socializing, daylight and dark. There is. There is. Um, much like our event, you know, having uh, two vastly different styles, mountain biking and road biking, um, those areas are probably couldn't be more polar opposite. Um, you know, from the road area, you're right. There's lots of tents because that's where they pit. That's where they come in. They get their bottles. They've got a crew person helping them or multiple people helping them, um, fixing stuff for them to eat, you know, coffee in the morning, all those kinds of things. But in, in, in um, true fashion, it's focused. It's, it's not terribly loud. There's a little bit of music playing, uh, but they want, you know, it, it's really focused and serious. Now, on the other hand, over in the mountain bike area, it is from the word go to the word we're done and the timing shuts off, it's a party. <laughs> and there are cowbells ringing. 
there's loud hooping and hollering. And, you know, a lot of it is they're cheering for each other, you know, because a lot of these guys know everybody. And, uh, but it is, it's vastly different, but it is a, it, it becomes a huge city over there um, for the weekend. Where can our listeners find you online if they wish to participate or maybe even sponsor a writer? Sure. Uh, the easiest thing is to go to our website. It's the number 24hoursinthecanyon.org. Uh, we're on Facebook and we're also on Instagram, but definitely the best place to, to get questions answered and so forth is our website. After the break, we'll take a look at all the other things Ryan does during the year, as if hosting one of the premier charitable cycling events in the nation weren't already enough. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. You recently hosted another smaller cycling event this past October, and in September you partnered with Pondicetta Brewery to do prostate cancer screenings for men. I was there, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be screened, especially since my father suffered from and then beat prostate cancer. Tell us about those events and your motives for creating them. You know, prostate cancer um, historically is in our top three in this region of cancers. Um, you know, you, you talk about guys, um, guys don't go to the doctor unless like a limb is barely hanging on, um, typically. Um, and, and, and really reluctant to, to follow up on things and follow. And it's, 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 it's an interesting dynamic when you're in the cancer world, women, they don't miss, they do this, they, they get screened, they do all these things. Um, and so, uh, the idea came to me, um, to partner with Pondicetta. They partner with us. They do a beer every year for us um, for 24 hours, Park Road 5, Pale Ale. And they're wonderful partners, and they're very generous to our community. And so I thought, you know, what what better to bring together this, you know, do a, 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 a blood draw, not, not the other screening that typically takes place for post, prostate cancer, but exactly, but a blood draw, and um, partner with them and say, you know what, come get screened, and we're going to buy you a beer. You know, come on, let's just make this happen and uh, beat just beat the stigma of oh, it's a screening and oh, I don't want to do that. And so uh, it worked. You know, we were there for about three hours and had uh, 61 men screened, three of which had um, abnormal PSAs. And so um, anytime you can do something like that and have those numbers, even though that's a, that's low numbers, it's still a very normal and good percentage of people, you know, to find positive. And so, or, or potentially positive, I should say. So uh, it worked out really well. And uh, um, I just love those guys a lot and what they do for us. And then, you know, you, you made mention of our, our other um, cycling event in October. We just had um, our third annual Good Nights Grind. Um, a lot of people um, feel it's unsafe to ride on the road. It's dangerous. And I know you're, you're in agreement. And so um, the shift has, has been made pretty heavily to gravel, dirt roads. And in fact, I 
honestly, I'm embarrassed to say I sold my road bike and I have a gravel bike and I love riding on dirt roads. Um, there's something about that solidarity, this long time to think and process and do. But anyway, you know, we've shifted and started to have um, a gravel event here in this community. And, and there's only a very small number of gravel events here. Um, and so we held, held it October 15th and um, had 156 riders. It's beautiful scenery. Um, actually starts in Goodnight and uh, goes through the historic J.A. Ranch. Uh, where Charles Goodnight settled and uh, ranched for lots of years. And um, we have three options, a 27-mile, a 47-mile, and a 75-mile. The unique thing is is that every bit of it is on county roads, even when it goes through the J.A. Ranch. It's a county road, and so um, it's, it's a lot of fun. I was at the brewery that night when you did the screenings. I had a good time. I was joking with people afterwards that I was hanging out with a bunch of old men, because that was pretty much what yes. it was. But I can't think of a better way to get old guys like me to come to a, a screening. I mean, we don't hang out at a at a boutique. We, no. But we're more likely to hang out at a craft brewery. Yes, yes. Well, and, and, and you, you hit it on the head. So even though prostate cancer is becoming a younger and younger man's disease— um, it's still important, of course, you know, 45, 50 year olds to 70, 75 year olds to be screened annually. And so, um, yeah, it's kind of that beer is the universal language, I'm convinced. And so uh, it just worked out well. Any idea how many men get prostate cancer? And is this something that's genetic? Yeah. So, on average, here in Amarillo, um, there's somewhere between three and 400 prostate cancers diagnosed a year. It's a lot. But you have to remember, too, um, we have a large catchment area. You know, the 26 counties, they all come here. Um, and so uh, that's not to say that there's three to 400 from Amarillo. Somewhere around 200 is on average, usually from the Amarillo area. But still, it's a lot. As I said, it's in the top three uh, cancers. Now, um, you asked about being uh, genetic or passed on, and it can. Um, if you have um, a father or a brother, in your case, your dad, those are considered first-degree relatives. And um, anyone who has a, a, a first-degree relative uh, with prostate cancer, your risk doubles that you may develop prostate cancer. Doesn't mean you will, but your risk does. So you're considered high risk. Uh, and in this case, you definitely need to speak, you know, anyone listening, you need to speak with your doctor. It's important to know those histories, you know, that my dad or my grandfather had. Um, it's very important and uh, to speak with your doctor about when should you be getting a screening done? Because there are exceptions outside the rule of thumb, you know, if you have a first degree relative that you need to be screened earlier. Now, it's been more than 25 years since my father was diagnosed with it, but he was 75 at the time, and they treated him, well, they inserted about 95 little radioactive pellets. Mm -hmm. He couldn't be around pregnant women or yep. little babies. Yeah. Basically, uh, they could go to church, but they had to sit in special seats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not close to anyone. Um, I know his odds of survival wound up being 100%, but what are the odds for everyone else? Yeah. Um, you know, everybody talks about survival rate and they typically look at like these five-year survival rates or these 10-year survival rates. Um, and, and it's interesting. So the five and 10-year survival rate for prostate cancer that's only in the prostate or it's near around the prostate is about 98%. So darn near close to 100. 
Now, if you have prostate cancer when you're diagnosed and it's outside and it's spread, your five-year survival rate is usually around 30 to 35%. Yeah. So the key on this is early detection. Um, I can't just scream that enough and stress that enough. Early detection, if you know, you go from a 98 to 100% cure rate to potentially 38, somewhere in there, 31, it's, it's big. So, um, and it's, of course, the bad thing about prostate cancer is, for the most part, it's asymptomatic. Um, there's very little pain. There's very little symptoms. I can't tell you how many times at the survivorship center a guy will come in and they'll say, well, I just was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And I, I looked at the doctor when he said, you have prostate cancer and said, do you have the right guy? I'm fine. I mean, look, look at the records again. Do you have the right guy? Um, because they totally don't feel anything at all. And that's unfortunate because, you know, breast cancer, you feel a lump or you have a problem and you go. Um, in this case, a lot of times it's found just coincidentally. Well, every October we think pink, we see pink, we hear all about breast cancer awareness and fundraising and all that. Um, but obviously men suffer from cancer too. It's just that, I don't know, maybe we guys have bad marketing. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I think, so. I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of, of that. Um, it, it's unfortunate, you know, um, we're guys. <laughs> That's the first thing, right? We're guys. Yep. And I hate to keep harping on that, but I can say that because I am a guy and that's how it is, you know? Um, the other thing about it too is I think that um, we've not had uh, someone like Susan G. Komen's sister who has just stepped up and made that commitment years and years and years and years ago. Like, I'm not going to let this happen to other women. And, you know, she started this, the sister started Susan G. Komen Foundation. Um, and so... I think the NFL and some of these other sports do a, a, a somewhat decent job sometimes of trying to be in the forefront, but it is. It, it's hard. How does Amarillo compare to the rest of the nation when it comes to the incidence of all kinds of cancers? I mean, are we like everyone else across the country, or do we have our own anomalies here? I think we're pretty much like everyone else, quite honestly. Um, the, the interesting thing is, um, so I was talking about, you know, prostate being in the top three, and and at our foundation uh, and, and a lot of the things that focus on the top five, you know, you kind of look at this top five and the top three tend to rotate a little bit, but not much. So it's usually breast, lung and prostate are the top three. Um, and then after that is colon. And then usually our fifth one is skin cancer, which a lot of people don't think about. But when you hear that, you go, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Now, I would venture to say uh, if you talk to all the dermatologists and you talk to the medical oncologists that treat uh, melanoma, they would probably say, yeah, we have a high incidence of skin cancer. And I think a lot of that's due to our heritage, you know, the farming heritage and, and uh, agriculture and working outside and doing all those things, um, which coincidentally, so our foundation talks about, we want to make sure we try to do some things to prevent these things and, and screenings. And so we help with mammography and we, we help with um, smoking cessation. And when it came to skin, it was like, well, we don't really do much for skin. So uh, we did some research and did some things, and uh, we, we placed 15 uh, sunscreen dispensers in Paladura Canyon State Park. It's the only state park in Texas that has free sunscreen available year-round, um, and it's replaced regularly. Uh, we also partnered with the Amarillo uh, Parks and Recreation Department, and we have them at the three city pools. Uh, we also have one at the uh, water park here in Canyon. Um, but we've, we've made it a, a point to say, if we, if we can't really affect skin cancer once it happens, we want to really focus prevention. And so sunscreen is the best way for that. 
Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people don't know this, especially even people around here. I, I didn't know this until a couple of years ago. Amarillo is in the top 15 sunniest cities in the country. It is. It is. We get 73 percent. Mm-hmm of the available sunlight. Florida just likes to think it's the sunshine state. <laughs> That's right. They just have lots of good marketing. The real sun belt is mm-hmm. from the 100th meridian t- to uh, the Pacific Ocean. Yes. That's where the real intense mm-hmm. sun is. You're right. We get tons of sunlight here, and, and we like to be outside, whether mm-hmm. you're a farmer or a hiker or biker or whatever. Mm-hmm. We're out there soaking up rays. We are. We don't need a beach to do that. No, we don't. And so... Uh, you know, again, I stress sunscreen, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to do and, uh, reapply. That's the key thing. A lot of people put sunscreen on and they go hike for, you know, two hours, three hours, but, uh, you need to reply, reapply about every two hours. So, uh, just a little side note on there. How much money have you raised for cancer survivorship through the years of your events? It's, it's interesting when you asked me that question, um, we've not really, bragged about this, but of course we keep, right? We keep numbers and keep numbers. And I, I'm super proud of, of what our team has done. Uh, so in, in, in 16 years, we've done $3.2 million. And um, every bit of that's gone to cancer, you know, whether it's helping pay for a mammogram or things like that. But of course, you know, more importantly, helping our survivors. And um, I, I love what I do. And it, it's, a, it's a great opportunity to help people. Do you think there will ever be be a cure for cancer that will no longer need to do any more research or fundraising or providing assistance for survivors? I mean, tell me, how does all this relate to the mission of the 24 Hours event? Yeah. That in and of itself, I think, is the million-dollar question, right? I mean, when will we find a cure and who's hiding what and not, you know, all the all the things. Well, I heard a speaker one time, uh, it's been years ago, that said, you know, will we find a cure for cancer? Maybe. Will we figure out a way to uh, live long-term with cancer being a chronic disease like you do with, say, diabetes? Not to, not to say it's the same, but using those diabetes, arthritis, you know, those chronic diseases, will cancer eventually be treated as a chronic disease? And you sit there and you think about it and you go, well, I, I could see that. Um, I don't really know. Um, I would obviously love to be out of a job. I mean, I would love... To, to not have to have, you know, people go through cancer treatment. Um, I just really don't, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know in my lifetime if it'll happen. I, I know it has to come. We're getting smarter. <laughs> We're having better techniques and better research and a lot of money being put towards research. So I would sure hope so. Um, you know, you mentioned about the, the mission of 24 Hours in the Canyon. Um, our mission is um, quite simply to provide resources to meet and address the unique needs of cancer survivors. And that's our goal at the Survivorship Center. As I mentioned, coming alongside them, we don't treat cancer. Uh, but the unique thing is through this crazy event, we provide everything we do at no charge. Um, and what does that look like? That looks like uh, group wellness classes. So it's really important to be active at whatever level that you're at. And so we talk about being active at the center. We, we talk about um, eating healthy. So we have nutrition classes. We have nutrition counseling. Um, we also have um, emotional counseling. It's very important. The mental health, mental health is a, you know, it's a big buzzword, right? Mental health, mental health, mental health. Um, in cancer survivors, it's incredibly important. And so we work with two licensed professional counselors. Um, we have free counseling. Um, we also have um, an oncology massage therapist that we work with. 
going through treatment, it's important to be stress-free or as close as less stress as you can. And so uh, we have a, a oncology massage therapist. We also have, um, as I said, group activities, wellness, Tai Chi, water exercise. We also uh, do a lot of fun things, outdoor activities. Uh, we, we know cancer survivors, especially during treatment, need mental escapes. Not worry about that test. Not worry about treatment tomorrow and how bad I'm going to feel in two days after treatment or when is my hair going to fall out, whatever that may be. Um, so we have mental escapes that we, we do fun things. Uh, we take people fly fishing, you know, uh, we do all hikes. We're, we're really big about the outdoors. We also have a wig boutique. It's important for women, uh, to have an identity with their hair. And so, uh, we have free wigs. And if we don't have the wig in, in stock in our room on display, uh, we will get the catalog out. We'll scroll through the catalog and let you find the wig that looks the best like you want to have. We'll order it and call it, call you when it comes in. So we really focus on the whole person, and that's what's most important. What else do you do when you're not hosting all these events? I mean, I know having organized events myself, it's it's a huge job, sometimes thankless, um, but it it is time-consuming, but... What else do you do during the rest of the year? It it does. It keeps me uh, plenty busy. Um, it's almost, I used to joke that, uh, you know, January was when we talked about the next year's 24 hours. And that crept back to like, okay, November, we talk about next year's 24 hours. And now I've managed to kind of put it at bay till October. <laughs> and so it does, it takes up most of the year. Uh, you know, I, my daughter's in college, so I've been making lots of trips to Stillwater. Uh, but, uh, you know, spending time with my family. Uh, we also do, I help with other events at our, at our foundation. So we have Children's Miracle Network. We have a 5K that our foundation puts on. And so um, there's plenty to be done. Well, since so many years have passed since you started doing all this, raising awareness, raising funds, can you point to specific progress that has been made as a result of your efforts? Uh, we see life changed at the Cancer Survivorship Center regularly. Um, to, to hear someone say, you know, when I came in, I was really stressed and I was anxious and, uh, you know, just did not think I could make it through treatment. And here I am now, a year later, and I'm as fit as I've been. You know, I'm as healthy as I've been. Those types of things, I mean, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly humbling um, to see someone come in and uh, at their deepest, darkest moment, and you know that it's not uh, good, obviously, to be there. Um, and we do whatever we can to help them out of that deep, dark moment. And so um, it, it, it's really an honor to be able to serve cancer survivors. When we come back, we'll take a look at the future of the events that Ryan directs, as well as the future of cancer survivorship. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for a promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. 
Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Brian, you've done an amazing job organizing and directing all these events. As a former race organizer myself, I know how time-consuming it can be. It's a very, very difficult job, and there's always someone ready to criticize you no matter what you do. <laughs> but I bet you get a certain satisfaction out of doing this, or else you wouldn't be back year after year. What is that satisfaction? Uh, Nick, we, we, we say this every year at our event is um, we call it our 24 hours in the Canyon family. And every year our family grows by about 900 uh, in June or May, end of May, 1st of June. Um, and it sounds cheesy to say that, but I truly mean it because there's so many people and, you know, going to events, you see so-and-so you haven't seen since the last 24 hour event you were at or the last event. Oh, I hadn't seen him in two years, you know, and you immediately click and catch back up to where you were. Um, and that goes on here. There's a lot of people I don't see, but annually at 24 hours and, um, to have them back, the satisfaction is, is, it, it means a lot. Cause I know they're coming back, obviously not because of me, but they're coming back to the event because they had a good time. They enjoyed it and they, they're there for the cause. Um, so that really means a lot, you know, and I, also I get great satisfaction from, uh, hearing the stories of why they're there. Um, uh, you know, I, I'll, it always starts like, you probably don't know this. But I was diagnosed or my wife was diagnosed, you know, and, and then you, they, they open up to you. And um, just to know that they're there to participate because of someone or in honor or in memory of someone, um, it, it's, it's very, very uh, satisfactory to, to see that as well. And then I would say the last thing that brings great satisfaction at the event is what we call our, our survivor send-off, where we have our survivors, many of them, that, that, that as many as possible that can be there. They don't tolerate the heat well, thanks to chemo, uh, but, but we have as many as we can down there, um, and they line the start, and we call it our survivor send-off. And um, it's, there's sort of this mutual satisfaction of saying, thank you for being here. No, 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 thank you for uh, being, we're raising this money for you. Thank you for being here. And, you know, you, it's just this awesome feeling to start the event. I like the way you have grown the race through the years, starting, you know, very humbly, modestly with just a basic event. And now you've got competitive, non-competitive, dirt, pavement, short, long, it's been a great way to enlarge your tent and welcome many people. You don't have to be a hardcore cyclist. You're not necessarily there to win races. You're there to make a difference. Any plans for expanding the scope of 24 hours in the future? Uh, I tell you, I get asked that monthly. <laughs> My favorite is, you know what you ought to do? And, and, and I cringe because I know what's coming. It's like, no, that's not what we should do. <laughs> I, I, you know, I feel like uh, we've got more than enough to handle at the moment. Um, but we're always, you know, we're, we're, we're married to our mission, but we're kind of dating the process, right? I heard someone use that example once before, and it's really stuck with me. Like, hey, we're married to this mission of helping cancer survivors. How we're going to go about doing it uh, can be kind of fluid. 
Um, and I kind of like where the fluid is at the moment. Um, but that's not to say that we, we never uh, want to stay stagnant. We always want to keep our options open. Any other new events coming down the pipe? Um, right now, we're really trying to focus on growing our good night's grind. Um, and really trying to push uh, folks to understand what gravel is, and it's not uncomfortable, um, and it's safer. So I, I really think that's kind of, in terms of new events, um, that's really our focus right now. It seems like uh, if we're fortunate enough to reach a significant age, we also have an increased risk of getting cancer. It's like the disease spares no one, regardless of income, education, ethnicity. We, we all got to go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if cancer doesn't get you while you're young, the odds are greater that it'll find you sooner or later, especially later. What can people be doing to try to keep that prognosis from being a bad one? Uh, yeah. And, um, you know, there's certain things you can do, right? You can't fix your genes, as we've talked about that. Um, so I would say first that, that uh, folks need to be talking to their doctor and making sure that um, their doctor knows their family history. You know, just as, as, like your dad. Uh, it's important to know that and, and verbalize that to your doctor because that makes a difference on uh, you probably need to be screened for that cancer earlier. And so I would say to make sure that they're, they're getting screened at the appropriate age. Um, I would also say don't ever, 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 ever skip a year. Don't ever skip a year. Um, it may sound, eh, eh, what's a year? I'll get it next year. Don't ever skip a year. I, I, I can't stress that enough. And I would say second, um, if you smoke, uh, the best thing you can do is quit smoking. Um, I heard a physician one time say, the best thing you can do without question to make sure that you reduce significantly your chances of having a cancer is to not smoke. And uh, it makes perfect sense. Smoking doesn't just cause lung cancer. It causes other cancers as well. So uh, I would say the other thing is to, is to not smoke. And then uh, the last thing I would say is um, regular exercise and eating healthy. Um, you know, those are, it's, it sounds quite simple, but uh, in reality, it can be very challenging. So let's shift gears a little bit. Your work is obviously of a charitable sort. Uh, your employer is a prominent nonprofit in Amarillo. But not everyone can say they do that. Um, what can the average person do to be involved in a positive way? Uh, you know, I would say this. I would say that um, this is going to look so different for each person um, that's listening or any, each person in particular. Obviously, as a nonprofit, right, we love, love, love people who donate. And we love donations. Um, that's how we do what we do. We fundraise and we, we, we raise money. Um, but we also, or at least I do, we, I also love it when someone says, Hey, uh, I'm committed to your cause and, uh, I'm here. You use me however you want. You know, it is rare. I've had it happen, but it's very rare to have someone say, I'm available all the whole weekend of 24 hours. What do you need me to do? And usually what I end up doing to those people is putting them on our committee <laughs> because I'm like, you don't find that commitment very often. Um, and that's, that's very valuable. So I would say, you know, gosh, if you, if you can't donate, write a check, you know, those types of things, um, simply volunteering and being present and being committed to the cause, um, because there's not one single nonprofit that I'm aware of that can't use a good volunteer. Um, and then I would leave, you know, your listeners on this question with a quote that I like to use sometimes Mahatma Gandhi said one time, um, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. And so 
that may not look like here's a hundred dollars, here's two hundred dollars. Um, that is simply serving others, and so that may be filling water bottles at a rest stop. If you could address my students, our students here, what would you say to them about becoming involved in the pursuit to help people survive cancer? You know, um, here's here, a couple of things, um, and this has kind of fleshed itself out over the years at our survivorship center. I would say one of the best things they can do right now as a student is, and I've mentioned this in various forms already today, is to talk to their parents and their grandparents. Know the health history, because here's why. Not only is it important because they may need to be screened earlier, but genetics is just blossoming and blowing up. And what I mean by that is um, there years and years ago, probably five, six years ago, there was a genetic test for breast cancer. There's a genetic test for melanoma and um, prostate cancer. And now it, the genetics is growing so much more to being available to say, maybe you don't have this, but you do have a high risk. And we need to, we need to talk about this. So I would say it's incredibly, incredibly important for them to know all of those things. Um, because, you know, your grandparents, my grandparents aren't here. So I got I got to learn about that from my parents, and so I think it's incredibly important to be educated about the health history of your first degree relatives. And then the second thing I would say is this: um, there's a very simple thing that your your students are in the prime age group to be a part of. Um, I would really encourage them to think about joining a bone marrow registry. Uh, very quite simple, very easy to be done. Uh, one of the ones that we've done before, we've done some some. Um, uh, registry drives is called Be the Match. Um, and really what they look for is 18 to 35-year-olds um, that are willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to join the registry. It's free. Um, it's a cheek swab. They send you a kit and you swab your cheek, swab your cheek, put it in the little tube and mail it back to them. They then test and run some some things on there. They want uh, to know your health history and your age and your, your race and demographics and so forth because that's important. And then what they do is they plug you in into this registry that's across the United States. So then let's say I develop uh, a cancer, a blood cancer, where I need a bone marrow transplant to save my life. Um, they'll plug my DNA and all my stuff into the registry, and they'll say, you know what? Nick is a match. Uh, we've got a 34-year-old man that's a perfect match for you. And then they'll reach out to you and say, hey, you're a perfect match for this guy in Amarillo who needs a bone marrow transplant. W would you would you donate? And then all the expenses are paid for, all of that's taken care of, and um, you're then donating bone marrow in a variety of ways it can be done um, that will be transfused into me to save my life. And so... You can simply by be on the being on the registry. They may never call you. I've been on the registry for, I don't know, ten years, and I've never gotten a phone call. Of course, now I'm out of this range of 35, 18 to thirty-five. But um, they may never call you. But the opportunity is there that you potentially could save someone's life. Now let's take this idea of talking to the students one step further. Um, they're all busy trying to start careers and families and buy houses. You know all the things that young people do it might be tough for them to find the time to donate or, you know, volunteer mm -hmm. and, and to give funds and all that. What, what words of encouragement would you have in spite of that challenge? You know, I, I would say this, um, there are lots of seasons in life. 
and um, they're in a season, right? They're in a season of growth. They're in a season of learning, and uh, they get that paycheck, and they may have student loans to pay off, and they may have these things. And uh, you know, while in that moment, it is it is a um, is a challenge. Hopefully, that challenge will be overcome, and you'll be in a different season. Um, and I think there are moments in time where you can you can donate, and I think it's incredibly important to support. Uh, organizations, not just ours, but organizations wherever you live, because you never know. I mean, you may be helping an organization and one day you may be the beneficiary from that organization. We have actually had that happen. And so um, it's very important, I think, to be involved um, one way or another of giving of your time or your finances in whatever capacity you can. But if if there's a moment in time you got to pull back, it's certainly understandable. Ryan, if you could change anything about your career, your many years of fundraising events and so forth, what would it be? Well, it's going to sound very cliche, Nick, to say I wouldn't change anything. I really wouldn't. Um, I love what I get to do. I love working with people. I love helping people, and I love problem solving. And a lot of what we do is that, is problem solve. Let's figure out how to make this work. Let's figure out how we can help you. Um, I, you know, I just think uh, it, I always refer, to, it really is an honor to be able to serve someone in their deepest and darkest moment. Um, it, it means a lot. I get great satisfaction, as I said earlier, out of out of seeing someone grow uh, out of that season. So I know it sounds very cliche, but I, I honestly wouldn't change a thing. Our guest today has been Ryan Parnell, Director of Operations and Special Programs at the Harrington Cancer and Health Foundation here in Amarillo. Give us your best shot, Ryan. You know, cancer doesn't care who you are, doesn't care your age, your income, your race, your gender. I mean, it really doesn't care how important you are because no one has time for cancer, right? You're busy. You don't have time. Um, This may shock some of your listeners, but it's estimated that one in two people will develop a cancer in their lifetime. Uh, So I can't stress enough to be educated about your family history, get screened appropriately, reduce your risks. Um, And, you know, we always say at 24 Hours in the Canyon, and I think this is a great way to leave this, is cancer doesn't sleep. Why should we? You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. 
You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.